Hello and welcome to Zooming In on Hate, a podcast series that brings together the brightest minds to figure out solutions to hate speech, radicalization and disinformation. Throughout this series, we regularly speak to various voices from tech, civil society, law enforcement and policymakers to identify and analyze the latest trends. This podcast is part of the European Observatory of Online Hate, or EOOH in short, and today we've got a very special episode for you, focusing on online radicalization and de-radicalization. This episode was recorded at the 6th International Conference, Civic Actors in Conflict, hosted by PDCS on November 9th in Bratislava, Slovakia. My name is Jordi Nijenijs and I'm with Dare to be Grey, but today you'll be listening to three amazing speakers. Our friend Maria Hermanova hosted a very interesting panel discussion looking into the world of online radicalization and de-radicalization, discussing trends, threats and solutions to explore the current developments of online mobilization and radicalization also related to the war in Ukraine. She was joined by Julia Abner, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, specializing in far-right extremism, radicalization, viral disinformation, conspiracy myths, and terrorism prevention. You might know her from the books The Rage, The Vicious Cycle of Islamist and Far-Right Extremism, or her second book, Going Dark, The Secret Social Lives of Extremists. She was also joined by Olivier Kaubergs, a researcher at TaxGain, and a member of the expert pool of the Radicalization Awareness Network, RAN, and CEPOL, the European Union Agency for Law Enforcement Training. So with that being said, I'll hand it to Maria. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this in-depth conversation. Let's start with a very general question, because online radicalization, that's a huge topic, and that's a very dynamic area with low, you know the changes are happening so quickly sometimes it's really hard for us to sort of catch them all and to stay in the picture so from your experience and from your research what are the main current trends in online radicalization and specifically what changes have you observed in the last two last few years let's say specifically maybe with the relation to the, um, to the Russian invasion to Ukraine, but also other, I mean, turbulent political events. So are there new platforms, new actors, new trends, new tools of online radicalization? Julia, do you want to start? Yeah, I'm happy to start. Um, I mean, this is obviously a, a big question. We could probably talk yeah. for hours about this. Mm. But in general, I would say that we've seen in the last few years, as the tech firms started um, to have a higher awareness and also face more pressure from uh, the political side, but also from, um, from civil society, basically, have started to take down more content and accounts on the mainstream platforms. So um, Meta, Google, and well, tr Twitter, previously at least. Um, we've seen a shift towards the old tech universe, so a whole universe of new um, fringe platforms that were created under the banner of free speech, sometimes hijacked by extremists, and of course also a major online migration of extremist movements um, towards encrypted messaging apps, especially Telegram mm -hmm. and, uh, and gaming apps like Discord. But then now with Elon Musk's um, takeover of Twitter, it's going to be the big question will be, yeah. will that change these dynamics? Will there be, um, yeah, maybe will we even move back 
to a Twitter of um, five years ago, where we still had quite a lot of hateful messages. I think someone on the previous panel or in the, the introductory remarks mentioned that there are already some signs that hatred is increasing uh, on Twitter and that radical content has, has increased um, in the last yes. few days only. So. Uh, this will be. This is this is more platform related now. But what we've seen in terms of dynamics, um, maybe also in terms of the different in in, in response to the different crises that we're facing now, I would say that we've definitely in the last few years since the outbreak of the pandemic seen an increase of online radicalization uh, and also an increase of of proactive attempts by extremist movements to really tap into new grievances, new uncertainty loneliness that was especially an issue during mm. the the lockdowns and um that that for example the web traffic on on incel misogynist related websites or also on some um extremist forums has increased during that period so we've had the, the of course the global pandemic which was a massive or is a mass, uh, massive global health crisis and that combined with um what i would say is a security crisis with the russian uh, aggression war in ukraine and the looming economic and energy crisis this is a whole uh, mosaic or a whole kind of conglomerate of different crises and we've seen in in the past in previous centuries even, even that um that crisis uh tend to lead to a, a stark increase in conspiracy myths and in yeah. disinformation and anti-minority hatred. And now, because we have also the new digital era um, of, of, of this going, going viral um, very quickly, we see that um, the consequences of this global multidimensional crisis are really uh, quite severe in terms of the, the increase in hatred, disinformation mm -hmm. and, and radicalization. So lots of worrying developments, yeah. not very optimistic. Maybe one last um, thing to say here is that, of course, now um, we saw that the topics have shifted a little bit from extremist movements uh, who were really trying to exploit um, the pandemic and, and kind of uh, adapted and tailored their conspiracy myths and their campaigns to, to fit the, the rising um, worries about vaccinations, about the pandemic itself, to spread conspiracy myths such as, um, uh, such as Jew flu or such as uh, a pandemic, the idea that, um, yeah. that, yeah, that Jews are behind the crisis, have shifted that towards uh, the topic of the Ukraine, um, of, of the, the Russian uh, war in Ukraine, and and that's now where we see different topics coming together as well. In some, in, in kind of under the banner of a broader anti-liberal, anti-democracy movement. But we see that there is um, the anti-LGBTQ uh, community, the kind of anti-feminist community, the racist or national uh, nationalist subcultures that they all somehow coalesce under the banner of um, we glorify Putin because he stand, he's standing up against a liberal, basically liberal um, yeah. democratic uh, values. Thank you. Olivier? Um, yeah, what I think is really important to mention is like you, you, you have given the example of the Jew flu is the normalization of hate speech mm -hmm. um, and the use of coded language when we, or if we look at the 80s and the 90s, we saw propaganda was really confrontational um, and you could really see the hardliner uh, slogans um, that were, were really directed to certain uh, minorities. And what we see today is, um, yeah, that they use a lot of 
abbreviations, memes, and they make the language and, and the aesthetics a bit more fluffy, more accessible <laughs> to people. And, well, yeah, that leads to accepting those narratives and using it, using it as a joke. And if you use it too long as a joke, it becomes yeah, mainstream language. So um, for me, that is actually the biggest change, which yeah, is a part of, of what you have explained very well, is, is how and what type of um, messages that they, uh, that they uh, put on social media. I like the expression more fluffy aesthetics of hate. <laughs> this is definitely something to think about and maybe to follow up on that because we, you both mentioned mainstreaming and I think, Yulia, you also mentioned like French mainstream platforms. That, that, that is actually kind of your expertise, Olivier. So could you just briefly explain, so what is actually the difference in French and mainstream platforms? How can we sort of label why is 8chan French? Why is Facebook mainstream? Uh, I, I wouldn't call uh, myself an expert in, in French social media, but I think I have a good view of, of um, how the dynamics are between these platforms. And I think the biggest um, difference between these type of platforms is the classic social media or the mainstream social media are the platforms with millions, sometimes billions of users. Um, I'm, I'm sure everybody in this room has one, two, maybe more than two profiles on these classic social media, um, which um, have certain characteristics. One of them is content moderation. Um, till a certain level, last few years, these platforms have invested a lot in content moderation. So um, we can discuss where this border is between free speech and what we should moderate online. Um, but I think they have a good grip on um, banning language that focuses mm -hmm. on hate on a certain uh, um, minority. Um, the second thing is um, how these platforms are organized. Um, you can see a lot of different topics there, uh, people with polit uh, different pol political views. Um, so they are accessible to everybody. The difference with the fringe and these alternative social um, media platforms is that they become an echo chamber. Mm. Um, people go there because they don't feel understood, they think they cannot express their uh, political view anymore, so um, they migrate to these other platforms. And on these platforms, you end up with only people who agree with each other, they do not um, uh, try to moderate each other, and then you end up with a platform where hate speech is just... yeah the normal way of talking mm. to each other. For example, 4chan um, has about one out of 15 messages, which is toxic to very toxic, where on regular platforms it's about one to 10,000. So um, these platforms, um, the content is very toxic, there's almost no uh, content moderation, and um, yeah, they are used as an alternative to the classic uh, platforms. So that's a good question now that you mentioned it, Julia, if what we will see what will happen to Twitter if they will <laughs> move to the fringe category, maybe now. Uh, you mentioned... Mm, yep, yeah, do you want to add um, something yeah, to that? Maybe one of the... Uh, well, one of the dynamics that we've seen in the past, because, of course, every change in the overall online information 
ecosystem means that there might be a change in how campaigns work out of extremist movements that are coordinated behind the scenes. Very often we've seen in the past that they're being coordinated, for example, a harassment campaign that is then targeting a journalist or a politician is coordinated on most often encrypted messaging apps um, because um, they can evade detection that way or can, evade, uh, can, can, can prevent uh, being taken down. Um, and or on on a small fringe fringe uh, platform, um, some of the ones that, that you mentioned, but uh, that they then often play out on on the big. Of course, that's where they have the biggest impact if they they happen on the on the bigger mainstream platforms. And with Twitter now loosening their paid speech policies under Elon Musk, that we, what we might see is that these campaigns are returning to um, mm -hmm. to Twitter and where they might be coordinated somewhere else, where the actual really hateful um, conversations are happening and where potentially even announcements of violence are happening, also at the moment are happening there. Um, but then the, the, the campaigns might be um, targeting politicians or political activists or journalists on Twitter again. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big, big risks or the big um, potential threats that I see in terms of the future of, of Twitter. Thank you. I think we will, at some point, we will need to move to the question, so how does the content on both fringe and mainstream platforms actually impact our offline environment? But I, I would like to stay within the online realm for a few more questions, a few more minutes. So, question for both of you. If we talk about both fringe and mainstream platforms, what are the main tools of radicalization that you see on those platforms? Olivier is one of the co-authors of the wonderful publication, The Handbook of Hate Memes, Thank which you can uh, pick up there at the registration. So, for example, memes are, I guess, one of the tools. You also, Julia, in your book, you talk a lot about how irony and certain type of internet humor is also a sort of used as a weapon in radicalization. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the biggest rhetorical weapons used by, by extremists to camouflage their very radical ideologies or their hateful ideologies is satire or humor. Um, but also modes of gamification that I would say are a major tactic in, in online extremist mm. um, communities. So what we've seen in the past is, of course, even jihadist movements like ISIS have made use of gamified campaigns, gamified propaganda. We saw that they posted the, the faces of jihadists um, onto, for example, Call of Duty, um, logos of the video game Call of Duty, and turned it into Call, of, call for Jihad or Call of Jihad. Uh, so there was a gamification element there already, mm -hmm. but now since basically since the run-up um, to the 2016 elections where Trump won the election, um, the alt-right has really pioneered a new wave of gamification and, and that includes the use of, of memes, of satire, of humor. Um, yeah, to to um, to hide some of, of, of the hateful ideology ideologies be behind those visuals, but it has also included a gamification of campaigns where um, there is a blurring of the lines between trolling and hatred. Um, of course, emerging from some of the 4chan or some of the other image board communities that were initially founded as trolling communities or trolling image boards. And, and have then turned uh, political and even to some extent extreme. And 
then the next step in that gamification of, of different elements in the extremist landscape was the first instance of gamified terrorism, which we saw with the Christchurch attack 2019. And since then, we've seen a whole range of copycat attacks where not just the propaganda and the communication was gamified, but even the attack itself was um, was gamified. So the Christchurch shooter using the, the first-person ego shooter angle, live streaming his video, mm -hmm. making lots of gaming references and subculture jokes um, to appeal to his audience on, on, on HN, on, on these uh, image boards and to that far-right um, yeah, um, online community. And then the next, the next few attackers who followed that pattern, making very similar, similarly use of, of gamified um, mechanisms and gamified mm -hmm. tactics. And what we saw then was that the lines between even what's fiction and what's reality, between what's terrorism and what's trolling, completely blurred. Mm -hmm. And the first comment underneath the, the live stream posted by the, um, by, by the Christchurch shooter was, is this a LARP? Is this a live action role play? So even some of the users weren't really sure anymore, is this actually happening or is this just um, a game and part of some kind of weird role game, role play. And, and then there were lots of video game versions that, were, um, that used the footage of the Christchurch shooter and turned it into, into video games where he lost ammunition with every shot he fired and where he gained points with every uh, person he, he shot dead. It was really terrifying. And in the last few years since that happened, there was a wider trend towards this kind of gamification of terror and even calls in those online communities for people to beat um, the score that, mm -hmm. um, that the Christchurch shooter had achieved and with their hero being Anders Breivik, who had the highest score. So that's a really toxic dynamic of almost a competition for, for higher scores in, in terrorism. And in that game, they even used the same layout of the of the mosque that the shooter entered. So um, the graphics weren't really good, but it mm -hmm. makes people feel like they can achieve what that shooter actually achieved: is entering in the same situation with the same camera view, just like in the in the live stream. Um, so the biggest advantage from the point of the extremist or the terrorist, of course, is the dehumanization of the victims. Mm -hmm. And it makes them not feel like they are shooting people, but they are in, in a game. Um, so gamification is, is very dangerous if we look at um, how fast someone can make that step from extremism to violent extremism or terrorism. And I think that's where the danger uh, uh, lays, and not really in the gaming community itself. Um, I think it has already been... Um, researched a lot of times that it's not gaming that makes people violent, but um, it has been proven that gamification of this whole uh, phenomena can, can push people over the edge and say, okay, now beat a high score. Um, a lot of times we, we also saw comments like, what is, this, um, what is this high score or what is the high score? Can he beat um, then Saint Bre uh, Brevik's high score? Um, yeah. Anders Breivik, the guy who um, yeah. shot, I don't know, almost 80, 90, maybe even more people in, uh, in Oslo. 77. Um, 77, thank yeah, you thank you. Um, well, they, they always compare these uh, terrorists with each other and then they make a ranking out of it. So uh, I think that's a very dangerous trend. Yeah, yeah and we see the same dynamic also applied to 
doxing campaigns or hatred or harassment mm. campaigns online where um, there's also yeah. a gamification mechanism that online far-right trolling armies use. I was, for example, I was undercover for a year and a half with the trolling army Reconquista Germanica, which was at the time Europe's largest neo-Nazi trolling army that specifically targeted uh, German politicians in the run-up to the last elections and German journalists and German left-leaning liberal activists. And they gamified their entire, they even had a media guerrilla warfare manual, and they gamified their entire way of, of, of working as an, well, it wasn't really an organization as such, but as an online movement. They had ranks in which you could climb up the hierarchy if you performed mm. particularly well. You could, um, you were called um, a foot soldier in an electronic army. You could target politicians in so-called sniper missions, and everything was very used the military language and was very gamified in that sense. And that created an incentive for especially young members to join in, not only for political or ideological purposes, but sometimes also just for the pure entertainment factor. And a lot of um, movements, especially on the far right, have copied this tactic. Patriotic Alternative, um, where I was undercover, um, uh, doing undercover investigations and interviewed their, their founder last year, Mark Collette. Uh, he even organized a, a gaming tournament or a video game competition online to bring in minors and bring in young people who would not necessarily be, be already in ideologically indoctrinated when they got there, but certainly at the end of this tournament or of this um, gaming uh, tournament, you could see that people uh, were posting into the, the chat group, I have to go to bed now, I have to go to school tomorrow, but at the same time were sharing uh, neo-Nazi memes, were saying, Hail Hitler, and you could see that there was a, really an active effort to radicalize young people, including minors. So that's a very dangerous dynamic, and we see in the, in the national statistics of the UK and of also Germany and other countries that the, the radicalization um, happening in the, in, in, the, in the very youngest generation and the numbers of young people being radicalized is really drastically rising. In the PREVENT program, we've seen that reflected in the numbers and also in, um, in other countries' um, national um, police or monitoring statistics, so that's quite concerning. This is a generation who does not grow up with their grandparents telling stories mm. about the world war. It becomes something abstract to them, and they see it more as edgy humor than they see it mm. as something that has really happened and that has been a part of our history. I mean, everybody in this room, their grandparents lived during, during the, the world war, so um, for us it's something that is more a part of our history, and my children will also grow up with World War being something that is just from the history books and not from a story that his parents or grandparents have told them. Mm. When I'm, sorry, maybe just to... one more oh, addition, yeah. because what's interesting, and we've just recently published, or one of uh, our colleagues at the ISD has published a report about, and also now um, Salafi jihadists actually copying the, the tactics of the alt-right mm. again now, because we've seen that kind of cross-pollination of and cross-inspiration of tactics. First, uh, far-right movements copying a little bit what ISIS was doing, or taking some of the, the visual um, appeal from, from the ISIS propaganda and integrating it into their own campaigns. And now we see the reverse happening because they saw how successful the alt-right has been with the youngest generations. And the report you can find online 
um, on the ISD website is called um, Islamogram by mm -hmm. Mustafa Ayad. I have so many more questions about like online tools and fringe platforms and gamification because that's a fascinating topic. But time is passing much more quickly, I realize. <laughs> so let's move to... And this is a really difficult question because what I see happening a lot of times in, for example, the, definitely the Czech, maybe the European media discourse around these events and, for example, even the latest horrific terroristic attack here in Bratislava is that we sort of tend to keep blame the, the platforms, like these people are radicalized because they are on the platforms and if it weren't for the platforms, this wouldn't have happened. And I'm wondering, and this is a really difficult question, so what, what is really, you know, are the platforms the cause or is the cause somewhere else and the platforms are just the tools? And I know this is a very broad and difficult question, but what are your thoughts about that? Mm. I don't think it's the fault of the platforms, but um, security is, is a chain and everybody is a part of a chain and the weakest link um, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's um, um, I don't know the word well the weakest link dip, um, makes um, how, the, how strong a chain is um, so the platforms are certainly a part of this chain but so are we as a society politicians, everybody is so um, we should not only point to the platforms but we cannot ignore that uh, what they see on the platforms can push these people to uh, commit these terrorist attacks um, so I think we should fight this problem on, on um, different levels uh, we should also look at um, education for example um, what can we do about poverty, um, which doesn't mean that poverty will push people into terrorism. Um, but we sh should look at everything and not only to platforms. Yeah, I would say that I, I agree platforms are not the cause of it, but they're certainly accelerating the dynamics mm -hmm. because they're tapping into the deepest layers of human psychology. And unfortunately, the way that our psyche works is that we prefer to see radical content, incredible content, including conspiracy myths, apocalyptic content, bloody content, and that's what a lot of the tech platforms have based their algorithms and their whole business model on, because they try to, of course, get us to stay as long as possible on their platforms. So the, 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 the essential ways in which their recommendation mechanisms and their prioritization of content works, that's still one of the biggest issues. That's also why the whole removing content or removing um, accounts will always stay a cat and mouse game and is not really helping with the problem. But what we definitely also see from the research is that the dynamics in terms of socio-psychological drivers in online radicalization are very similar to what we've seen in offline radicalization. Mm -hmm. um, so my research at, at the Oxford University is looking specifically at identity in online echo chambers and in virtual spaces and whether they are similar to the identity transformations that we see um, contribute to radicalization towards violence in offline settings. And the answer to this based on, on the research is yes. So there is um, this effect called identity fusion when your personal identity merges with your group identity, which makes you a lot more prone to committing, commit, committing an act of martyrdom or an act of terrorism on behalf of the group because you essentially feel one with them and you want to protect them, especially if you have a perceived threat from the outside to that mm -hmm. in-group. 
And this exact dynamic is now happening in an accelerated way almost in online echo chambers because you, um, you share very deep emotional experiences with your peers there, with other group members, and, you, and, and that lends itself to fostering identity fusion. And when that is combined with an exist a perceived existential threat, that makes people a lot more willing to commit real-world acts of violence. So I would say that we should look at, of course, at the drivers that we've previously identified in offline radicalization pathways, but find ways to also tackle them in online spaces through innovative online mm. intervention mechanisms. Do you I, I don't yeah? think the problem lies in the algorithms. I do agree that we tend to like, retweet, and so on, more uh, graphic content, something that is, um, yeah, that you can discuss with others because it's bloody, it's, it's, it's cruel, etc. Um, but I think the algorithm just wants us to be on the platform as long as possible. Um, if it is true graphic content, well, then it has to be that way. Um, but I think it's very important to look at these echo chambers because if people migrate to a different platform, for example, a telegram group where they only discuss um, neo-Nazi or jihadi memes, um, I think it's more important to look at those echo chambers and try to change the, the content there or try to get people back out. Um, unfortunately, I cannot give you an how we should do this or what will 100% work. But I think it's more key to look at the echo chambers than to look what an algorithm does and how we can break an algorithm. But wouldn't you say it's an interaction looking at the entire ecosystem? A lot of people only get down that rabbit hole to joining a Telegram group because they've had they've, they started maybe with a very benign, moderate YouTube video about, I don't know, about dating or about um, finance, and they end up down that rabbit hole of conspiracy myths or of um, anti-feminist content, and they might then join a misogynist telegram group mm -hmm. that is mentioned in one of the comments because they start going down that, um, that rabbit it, hole. It's so. definitely dangerous, I'm, I'm not going to deny that, but I think it's more important that um, we do not give people access to that content. Um, of course, then we go into the discussion, what should we remove, what shouldn't we remove, but if they don't have the chance to mention this Telegram channel, then they also cannot click on it. Um, at the end, the algorithms want us to be, or wants to give us the content that we are looking for. If I'm on Twitter and I get a lot of dog videos, I will close the, the app immediately. <laughs> if I see a a cute cat, I will stay a bit longer and give it a like, for example. Um, so I think the algorithms also help us and people who are in the political middle to just see the content that they like and um, that they have a pleasant time on these platforms. Um, so I know it's a completely different discussion, but I think we should look more at what um, these platforms will offer as content than what the algorithm itself does. Mm. I would like to follow up on a, on a thing that you mentioned, that the algorithms basically give us what we want. And so the, the important question is what it is that we want. And you write in your book, Julia, that in these radical communities, that these radical communities are often sort of an antidote for loneliness or boredom. So I'm wondering if you know because we are bored and lonely, or because certain groups of society feel lonely and bored. So this is the driver of radicalization. But I also think that the, um, 
the image of a terrorist or a radicalized person of someone who was left behind lonely and bored is somewhat stereotypical, but you've spent actually a lot of time undercover with these people, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course, not every terrorist is going to be is going to fulfill this typical cliche of of being the lonely odd one out and not having any social contacts. But I would say that there is an underlying pattern in a lot of the biographies of terrorists that I looked at, and I've done a, a terrorist manifesto analysis of the last um, of terrorist manifestos that were um, published in the last 10 years just prior to attacks being committed. And one pattern that sticks out is an, a very um, fundamental identity crisis. And that could be, could be loneliness, could also be some, some other question relating to one's identity, like a masculinity crisis or some kind of dating crisis or a, a family crisis or a bigger, um, yeah, to, just still some kind of identity crisis um, that, that is really that a lot of these people have in common. And I would say that the cocktail of radicalization is always a mix of different ingredients. And of course, loneliness um, and maybe even boredom are often featured in those, but there are also grievances, there are, um, there, there are other, uh, lots of other elements that, that would feature usually in the, in the biographies. So of course, um, we can't really say, and all the research shows, that there is no, not one profile for a terrorist or for a deadly mindset, mm -hmm. that it's always a combination. But identity is actually, from, from the review of all um, literature on radicalization uh, drivers towards violence, identity is one of the factors that appears in pretty much all of the, um, the studies that found positive evidence for, for this featuring mm -hmm. as a pattern. And that's because identity is often the bridge between personal grievances and group narratives. So mm -hmm. when your personal identity suddenly becomes linked to a bigger uh, extremist narrative that then explains the personal grievances with a conspiracy myth um, that is then targeting um, hatred or dehumanizing or demonizing um, ideas at an enemy group. And I think that's, that's an essential part of it. So I would say that's why I would say identity is, is really key in that process. Yeah, Do and I don't think comment? it's um, only online, it's also with offline, mm. if we can still make that distinction, offline and online uh, terrorist groups that people don't feel like they're, they're a part of, of society anymore and they look for, um, yeah, for, for people who agree with them, who support them, who give them the support they never had in society because they, they feel lonely or, or misunderstood. And, and that is very attractive in terrorist groups or online communities. Um, I think it's, it's almost the fundamentals of the, of the incel community that yeah. they yeah, can, can, can air their grievances about being lonely, not having a girlfriend and so on. So I think that is, if there is a, um, um, a common uh, denominator, mm -hmm. yeah, um, that it is uh, their search for identity and, and, and people around them. Yeah. Maybe one addition, because I, in the beginning, said it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that yeah. they become lonelier and are then mm. finding, um, finding that community in their extremist group is also because they end up spending so much time online. Yeah. In, they spend their 
I, I, I saw how some individuals all of a sudden go from just in, being introduced to a new extremist group to spending their late nights during the week, their weekends in those online groups. And they, of course, also lose some of their, their friendship, their actual offline mm -hmm. friendship groups or their social circles and even their families because these extremist groups sometimes even become replacements for, for their families. Um, and you see that in how they then use kinship language when talking to other group members, what they then call um, my QAnon family or my white brothers, yeah. my fellow European sisters, brothers and sisters. Um, and that's, that's an interesting phenomenon that then makes them, in essence, lonelier and, and, and even more in need of those um, social online new networks, new families. So, sort of key takeaways from this discussion is we should focus like identity and community and then how these can become the communities that strengthen the identities or offers uh, offer a way to build an identity how they can become eco-chambers and then become radicalized. I have so many other questions, but we are running out of time. I would like to ask one more question that I think is pressing here for many people who are sitting here today. Because this is a very uh, dangerous, perhaps traumatic environment to work in for a researcher, for a practitioner. I know, Olivier, you also wrote a report about the safety of practitioners. And Julia, you spent so much time <laughs> in this very dangerous environment. So do you have any advice for us who are working on these issues? So how do you protect yourself? How do you stay sane? <laughs> Yeah, there are, of course, lots of different layers of how to protect oneself. One is the actual just physically protecting oneself, making sure that your address is not to be found anywhere on the internet because I, I really I realized in the last few years that you never know when a doxing campaign or a hate campaign might hit you and it's sometimes in the most unexpected moments or with the most unexpected triggers that can kick off such a campaign and then all of a sudden the address or the phone number, um, your own phone number is leaked or your family's um, yeah, school address or it might, it might really um, go into a very deep personal sphere and that's mm -hmm. where I would say it's really essential to almost keep the private space out of anything that is mm -hmm. public. Um, the other layer is of course cybersecurity. I'm taking um, all of the cybersecurity measures I can take and would, would definitely recommend that to use VPNs to um, make sure your IP address can't be traced if you go on extremist websites and do research there. Really make sure you're, mm -hmm. you can't be geolocated or your, your laptop can be kind of, or your computer can be, can be traced in any way. Um, and, and the same is true for social media. I always turn off all geolocation mechanisms. Um, and then, of course, there's the psychological side, and I think it's, that's almost the most um, challenging one to tackle. Um, and I think it's, it, we've seen in previous research that uh, being exposed to extremist content and dealing with these very challenging issues can actually cause long forms of trauma. Um, it's more of a chronic trauma. It's not based on one um, deeply transformative experience, but more on the constant exposure to it. So I think trauma therapy or, in general, psychotherapy or psychological um, mentoring can be really helpful here and what I personally do is social media detox. I really um, almost yeah, try to just stay away from social media for a few days to gain my own just mental health back after a period of, of yeah. deep research and investigations. Thank you. Um, I think the best advice that I can give is don't go there. 
Um, I mean, it's <laughs> extremely toxic. Um, it really, it has never made me happy going to these platforms, never seen anything nice. So I would just keep it to the researchers who are now doing it, who have really a reason to go there, because um, it's really depressing and really toxic. Um, I did a survey amongst uh, professionals and people who spend more than 10 hours on social media per week, and I mean, sometimes we get there in two days, I think. Um, they reported more um, overprotectiveness of their families, um, more sleep disturbances, nightmares. Um, they became more cynical. So um, I've, I haven't, um, or, or there was no one who reported something positive. Um, so I would leave the, those very toxic communities to, to professionals who are researching it, and not just to go there because you're interested and you're curious. Um, I would avoid that. Thank you. Just from personal experience, also, if you don't turn on your VPN when you're doing research on extremist content, then your YouTube homepage and certainly your feeds tend to turn really unpleasant, so <laughs> <laughs> please do that. So that was our panel discussion hosted by Maria Hertmanova featuring Julia Ebner and Olivia Kaubers. A warm thank you to our guests and host. And thank you for listening to this episode all the way till the end. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast to be updated on our next episodes and check out our other work at www.eooh.eu. And a very special shout out to our funder, the European Commission's Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme by DG Justice. Thank you and goodbye.